John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. All righty. Good morning, Midlands Church. We are, in our, uh, we are at our second to last week in the Gospel of John. Next week will be our last, and it has been quite a journey. Um, feels like to me that we spent quite a while early on in John. I don't know how it felt like to you guys, but then recently it feels like it's just been flying by, going quickly, but uh, maybe that's just me. At any rate, I'm really excited about um, today's passage. We're in John 21, verses 1 to 14, of course, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this might be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Um, it's certainly up there with some of the best, I think, and I think uh, hopefully you will see. It's been really impactful in my life. It's been uh, a powerful story about Peter and his redemption. Um, and I hope that it can have the same level of impact and power in your life, the way it's influenced me. And I think that it might, because I think this is one of those universal passages that basically everybody can relate to. Because in this passage, John uh, gives us this story to deal a lot with the idea and the concept of shame. And I think that's, that shame is a powerful uh, feeling that we have, and virtually everybody across the whole globe and throughout all time, I think, knows to some extent what shame is, what that feels like, and we all have this common uh, feeling, this common understanding about shame. And so I think most people recognize that shame has something to do with humiliation, it has to do with pain and regret. I wouldn't just call it remorse. Remorse, I think, can fit largely with repentance and the idea of being sorry that you did something, but shame goes a step farther. Shame can actually be really unhealthy and crippling uh, in our lives. And so it's a little bit different than guilt, whereas guilt is something that is um, internal. It's not related and connected to other people. You could be on an island by yourself and feel guilt over something. And there's nobody around, and that would be a totally like, normal thing to experience for a lot of people. Fear is another one that could be connected to other people, or it might not. 
Fear uh, can be fear of other people or fear of what could happen, fear of how you're perceived, all that kind of stuff. But fear can also come from outside of relationship with people. Again, you could be on an island by yourself and you could experience fear. But shame is a little bit different. Um, and that's not to say that guilt and fear don't need to be dealt with. They certainly do, and Jesus does deal with those as well. But this passage, I think, takes a little bit more of a look at shame. Um, shame is something that is inherently connected to relationship. It can uh, be in the context of how we think others perceive us or we think that other people think about us. Uh, and it may be real, it may be legitimate, or it may not. It may just be perceived. It may be your own thoughts. It may be lies that the enemy is feeding you or that you're telling yourself. And so shame sometimes um, can be based on things that we've done, where there are things that uh, we've gone too far, crossed boundaries, hurt other people, done things that are just wrong. And we feel shame over that because we know what we've done. This is certainly what Adam and Eve felt um, back in Genesis. We can see that shame goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And so in chapter 3, we're told that they had taken from the tree and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they felt shame over that, perhaps because they could see one another and even more, they could be seen by one another, but I think also because God knew and they were ashamed before God of their own nakedness and what they had done. So shame is connected to other people and uh, sometimes it's based out of that feeling that we talked about where you know you've done something wrong, but there are other times um, where it can be really unhealthy, where it's actually based out of maybe a circumstance you find yourself in or something other people have done to you, and it's not actually your own fault at all. People do experience shame over that. And I can't dive into the depths of all that. I'm certainly not a psychologist. I'm no expert in that field, but um, I do think there's a powerful story here that John gives us where we get to see Jesus deal with shame, specifically Peter's shame in his darkest moment. So uh, I came across an article by a psychologist named, named Alexis Johnson. Um, she uh, wrote this article a number of years back called Healing Shame, and there was a, a, just a powerful quote in it that I thought uh, really fits with the idea of what shame is and how we can heal from it. And so uh, she says this, she says, the sense of brokenness we carry was created in relationship and so must the sense of being healed come through relationship. And I like that because it really highlights the relational nature of shame. So um, I think what we'll see today as we jump into our passage is that the relationship between Peter and Jesus is actually the way that Peter works through and finds healing from and in his shame. And so Jesus brings up one of Peter's darkest moments, not for the purpose of hurting him or to shame him just in and of itself, but it actually has a grander purpose where Jesus wants to heal Peter and bring him back. And so today we're going to look at this idea of shame and see how Jesus actually works through it, not to hurt us, but actually to heal us. And specifically, we're going to look at it through the, the theme of recreation. So let's jump in. John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. And we're going to see four, excuse me, four uh, things that Jesus recreates. The first three are moments, and the last one is a person, and that person is Peter. So the moments are, number one, Jesus recreates this uh, miracle. 
This, this moment where the disciples bring in a lot of fish. And that's actually not the first one we're going to look at. That's the third point we're going to look at, even though it comes in uh, first chronologically in the passage. We'll take a look at that more toward the end. Number two is we're going to look at uh, this fire that Jesus recreates. It's a charcoal fire, and there's something really interesting going on there. And so we'll come back to that in a little bit. And then uh, number three, we're going to see another moment Jesus recreates. And this is actually going to skip a little bit ahead into Hart's passage next week, later on in John 21. But Jesus asks Peter three questions. The same, actually, it's the same question three times. And so we're going to look at those questions. And then fourth, of course, Jesus is recreating Peter through this process. So uh, number one, the first point, not the first thing that's recreated in the passage, but remember, we're going to start with this fire. So let's set the scene. John 21, Jesus has already been resurrected. He's He's appeared to the disciples already, John tells us. And then he comes to appear to them again for this third time. And he comes to the shore, and the disciples had already decided, all right, I think we're going to go out and fish. And Peter's like, I'll come along with you. So some of the disciples are out in a boat on the sea at the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. And they have not caught a single thing so far. I mean nothing, which is just disheartening when your livelihood is based on fishing. And so Jesus comes onto the shore, and he calls out to them in the midst of them not having caught anything. And so we're going to begin in verse 7. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, rewind, uh, to finish the, setting the, the back, uh, back story. Jesus tells them, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And you can imagine, these guys probably have tested all sides. I mean, if you're not catching anything on one side, you're probably going to go to the other side. I imagine they were trying left, right, front, back, up, down, whatever, doesn't matter. They wanted to bring some fish in and they couldn't get anything. And so Jesus says, hey, throw your net on the other side. And I'm sure that they probably had already tried that, but they do it anyway. And they can hardly bring in the net. There are so many fish. And so then, uh, this brings us to verse 7. Now, look with me. John 21, verse 7. Then the, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. He recognizes him at that moment, and he says, hey, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, because he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards or so. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. Literally, I'm reading from the NIV, that's what my version says. I think it's uh, ESV that was on the screen earlier, and it said charcoal fire. That's literally the, the Greek word means charcoal fire. They saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. That's a lot of fish for some guys to bring in. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, Jesus has this fire going on shore. A little quick aside, something my dad pointed out recently that's, that's really cool that I actually hadn't noticed. And we won't go all the way down this rabbit trail, but I thought this was really cool and maybe an encouragement. On this fire, there's already fish 
Jesus already has fish and bread, and yet he says, come bring some fish. So Jesus was prepared, even if the disciples had not obeyed and thrown the net on the other side, Jesus was already prepared. He already had fish and, and stuff ready to go for them. And I think that's just really cool, but how much cooler that the disciples actually did obey, that they did throw their net on the other side and therefore received an even greater blessing by bringing the fish in. But again, that's an aside. So the, the main point that I want to look at here is this charcoal fire. Now, why is this so interesting, a charcoal fire? You might think, no big deal. Fires are a pretty normal thing back then. How else would you cook your fish? Well, it's not necessarily the fire that's interesting. It is, but I think you'll see why. It's, what, it's how John talks about it in his gospel. The Greek word that's used there is only found one other place in the entire New Testament which means one other place in the whole Bible because the Old Testament, of course, is in Hebrew and Aramaic. But it's found one other place in all of Scripture, and that's John chapter 18. Now, what's going on in John chapter 18? This charcoal fire, the only other place we find that word, that is the same fire that was going outside when Jesus was being taken, when he was being arrested, and we're told that Peter had followed him, and then Peter goes to stand with some people, and it's cold, it's nighttime, and they have this charcoal fire going. And they're warming themselves by it. And Peter stands there and warms himself by it as well. And that's the very moment when he had denied Jesus three times. It's around that fire that he's asked three times, hey, don't you know that guy? And he says, no, 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 I don't know him. And somebody else says, actually, I, I think I've seen you with him. You know that guy, don't you? And he says, no, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. And then somebody says, that, that, yes, I saw you in the garden. You do know this guy, don't you? And he swears and he says, absolutely not. I've never met the guy in my life. And it's one of Peter's darkest moments, one of his heaviest moments, one of his lowest lows is at this charcoal fire. And I think John is trying to get us to remember that instance. Now, just as a, a slight step back, uh, I think it's important to um, understand how biblical authors use words. So we have to think for us, it's really easy if we're writing something and you want to edit that or change that. You're like, ah, I don't like that word. All you do is hop back on your computer, on your word processor, whatever, and you backspace a few times, change a word, really easy, no big deal. And you can write lots of long stuff and it's not that difficult for us, doesn't take that much time. I mean, some people, of course, write faster than others, but the point is it's not that big a deal. But that wasn't the case back when the Bible was being written. It was not common for people to be educated and uh, write like that. Only a certain number of usually men were equipped to do that. Beyond just that, it took lots of time and money to be able to write on scrolls or papyri or, or whatever you were using. Uh, the materials cost a lot of money. A lot of times you'd have to have a scribe write for you if you weren't literate. And then beyond that, it, you, you want to keep it concise. You want to keep it short and communicate as much as you can with as little space so that it's, it's faster, cheaper, and easier to reproduce so that when people are copying it, they don't have to spend more time, more money uh, in order to do that. And so what happens is in the Bible, it's a, it's a masterful crafted, masterfully crafted book, and people, the, the authors try to communicate as much as they can in as little space. So it's important to pay attention to things like when a word appears certain times, 
a lot of times what's going on is that the authors will be picking up on previous themes or previous words and how that was used and carrying it forward. Now that could be within an individual book, such as we have in John. It could also be uh, in other um, texts. They could be drawing on previous biblical books and canonical books. So it's important that this word only appears one other time because John is trying to tell us, hey reader, pay attention. I want you to be thinking about when Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire and he denied Jesus three times. I want you to have that in mind as I'm telling you this story. But he doesn't want to use all those words to tell us to remember that. So he just says, I'm going to use this one word that only occurs here in my gospel. And it's in John 18 when Peter denied Jesus three times. That's the first moment that Jesus is recreating. And John communicates that Jesus was recreating this moment by telling us that he had a charcoal fire, the word that's only used one other time. And so Jesus recreates, begins to recreate this moment of shame for Peter. But again, we'll come back and see that it's not just to shame Peter. So let's keep going forward. The next thing we see, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, as I mentioned in the next week's passage. I won't take too much from here. Hart, I'm sure, has a lot of really good stuff to dig into. But uh, I just want us to see these three questions. So when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said again, Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The exact same question. And you can almost imagine it now. This was Peter's lowest moment when he had denied Jesus three times. Jesus even told him, hey, you're going to do this. And Peter's like, no, 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 I'll follow you wherever. And then he gets to the moment, and he actually does deny Jesus. And so Jesus asks a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you can almost imagine, you can almost feel and see Peter kind of having his head down, looking away, as shame is often to make us do. We often want to withdraw. It can bring up a fight or flight response, not physically necessarily. Of course, we all have a physical fight or flight response when we feel threatened, when we feel like we're in danger or we're scared. But there's also an emotional one. And often shame will drive people to that flight response where they want to withdraw, get away from people, isolate, and not be around others because remember, shame is a relational kind of thing. And so you can almost feel Peter looking down and saying, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And what else does John tell us except the fact that Peter was hurt. John says Peter was hurt when Jesus asked him a third time. Peter knew what was going on. He sees the fire, and he's asked the same question three times in a row, just like the last time when he was at a fire, and he was asked the same question three times in a row. Essentially, when he was around that fire, when Jesus was arrested, he was saying, I don't love you, Jesus, enough to accept you in front of others. I don't love you enough to risk my own safety, my own life. And so he said no to that question three times. And now Jesus comes back and he gives him another shot. And he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And the third time he's hurt. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And so Jesus has just recreated this second little scenario. John tells us that Jesus has this fire going, and now he's asked Peter three times, do you love me? But Jesus is not doing this just to hurt Peter. He's not doing this for shame. It's actually a healing process. And the way we know this is one, just because of the character of Jesus. If we've read the Gospels, we're aware that Jesus is a healing person. But also, it's that first thing that Jesus recreated. Back when he says, hey, throw your net on the other side. Now, this is a story that does occur elsewhere. It doesn't occur in John's Gospel, but it occurs in Luke's Gospel. But the interesting thing is that in Luke's Gospel, this story occurs at the beginning when Peter was first called to be Jesus' disciple. He's out fishing, and Luke tells us that they haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they decide to trust this guy. They don't even know who he is. And so they say, okay, sure, I guess. And again, you can imagine they've probably been trying. And so they say, sure, I'll give this a shot. And they throw their nets on the other side, and they can hardly bring it in. There's so many fish. The same miracle except Jesus used it in Luke to call Peter to ministry. And now in John, I think he's using it to call Peter back to ministry. So a quick note, why would John give us this story at the end of the gospel and yet not at the beginning of his gospel? It seems like it'd be great to bookend his gospel with this story twice. Why not tell us both times? Well, this gets into uh, how to interpret the gospels. And I won't spend too much time here, but I'll just give you a couple of thoughts. Uh, There are a couple different ways that people and scholars have interpreted this, and I think both are legitimate. Um, One of those ways, and I think it's probably the most natural for us to think, uh, is to say, well, yeah, this this, uh, instance happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he called Peter to discipleship, and it happened again. Jesus recreated it at the end. Another option that some people think is that maybe this actually only happened once in Jesus' ministry, and Luke just tells us it at the beginning, whereas John tells us the story at the end. And I'm not necessarily taking a side or saying you have to think one way or the other, but I'm just telling you what some people think. And that, I think that can make people uncomfortable sometimes, but I, there's a good analogy that I think can help us understand why uh, things could be ordered a little bit differently. And right, you, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that sometimes they're told in a different order. And I don't think that's problematic for us. Um, I think our, our natural inclination is to go toward trying to harmonize them and figure out what do they say together. And I, that's not a bad thing to do. I think there's a place for that. But I think we also are supposed to come to each of these texts individually and say, okay, how was this book, how was Matthew or how was Luke put together as one? What story is it telling? Because it's not just the stories that they tell that help us understand what's going on, but it's actually the order in which they're told that can say something as well. Let me give you an example. So we've been in John for a couple of years, and John gives us eight miracles, eight signs, more than eight miracles, but eight signs. And that's important. It would be easy to go, well, what other signs did Jesus do that we can see in the other Gospels, and let's import those into John. But John actually has a purpose in giving us only eight. He even tells us, we'll see at the end of chapter 21, he says, man, if everything Jesus ever did had been recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to talk about it all. Jesus did so much. But John intentionally picks out eight things for us. The first seven Uh, are signs that come before Jesus' resurrection, and they kind of increase 
in scope and severity and power each time. And I think this is analogous to Jewish thought, which thought in terms of numbers sometimes. And so seven is a representative number in Jewish thought. Think back to creation. God created the, the heavens and the earth in six days in Genesis. And the seventh day, he rested. The idea of ruling and reigning over his creation that was normal in the ancient Near East to write in that kind of a way where you had rest representing ruling, kind of like kingdom and kingly rule. Well, eight eventually in Jewish thought came to mean something because seven was the idea of completeness and wholeness. But remember, right after we get the picture of uh, seven days of creation, six days of creation and one day of rest, we have the fall in Genesis 3. And so things are not as they were intended to be. They're broken. And eventually there were uh, Jewish scholars, ancient scholars, who came to see eight as a symbolic number. Because you had six days of creation, a day of rest, and that's our week, and then you start over again. The next day would be what? Oh, it's this idea of the first day starting again. In other words, the idea of creation may be happening again. And so eight came to symbolize new creation. And so John gives us seven signs. What is that eighth sign he gives us? Oh, it's Jesus' own resurrection. I think that's meant to communicate that Jesus' resurrection is the new creation. It's that symbolic number eight that is beginning a new creation in this earth. And so I say all that to say, I bring all that up to say that the way gospel, the gospels are put together and the way biblical books are put together have a, a purpose to them. It's not just a random assortment and collection of stories. And so now that brings us to, okay, if that's so, then why would John give us this at the, the end and not the beginning? Remember, we said there are a couple of different options there. Well, I want to give you a quick analogy as to the different ordering of things. That can be really problematic for people, but think about World War II, for example. If you had historians who wanted to write about World War II, you might have one guy who says, all right, I'm going to tackle this in as much detail as I can. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to try to go chronologically. Of course, there's so much going on, you can't include everything. So you still have to pick and choose stories. But you could go in chronological order. That is one option. But there are other options, too. It's very easy for us to understand how somebody might go, well, I actually want to organize it slightly differently. I want to talk about Britain's role in the war in this chapter. And then I want to talk about France's role in the war. And then I want to talk about Germany, then Japan, then the U.S., and so you could organize it where it's not chronological, but it's actually kind of topical. And it still tells a coherent story. The story that that would tell about World War II is each country has its own thing that it's going through and dealing with in the war. Again, you, it could be organized differently than that. You could have the, the uh, Western Front in Europe for one section of a book. You could have the Eastern Front for the next section, and you could have the Pacific Front. And you could go beyond that to include other things as well. The point that I'm making is that it's normal, even for us today, to reorganize some stuff so that it doesn't have to be chronological necessarily, but it can actually have a purpose and tell a story behind why it's ordered a certain way. And that was normal in the, in the ancient world as well. Sometimes they would reorder and move things around in order to tell a story. No big deal. So regardless of what's going on, I think John, when he gives us this story, this is a rare instance where I'd say, I think he might be relying on prior knowledge. 
that people are aware at the time that Luke's gospel did include that account at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. This is a rare instance where I do think it's actually uh, intentional that we look at another gospel to understand what's going on. John was written, a lot of scholars think, probably in the 80s or the 90s in the first century. Uh, the synoptics are usually, depends who you ask, but dated between the 50s and the 70s. So we're talking 10, 20 years or more between when John was written and when the other Gospels were written. So certainly John would have known about the other Gospels that were already written. And it's fair that he could assume that others who might read his or hear his in a church setting would know about the other ones as well. So I think he's drawing on the fact that we know from Luke that this miracle was done at the beginning of Jesus's ministry when he called Peter to discipleship. And now John gives it to us at the end. And so it's this idea that Jesus is recreating this miracle. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I know that you failed me. In the moment of Peter's greatest shame, when Jesus brings up his greatest shame, and he says, I know you were around that fire, and I know you denied me three times. And Peter's hurt because of that. Peter is meant to understand that that's not the first thing Jesus recreated. The first thing Jesus recreated was actually the miracle. And so Peter's supposed to understand that this is in the context of Jesus saying, I see you. Remember what the psychologist said. The sense of brokenness we carry was created in relationship, and so must the sense of healing come through relationship. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm in relationship with you, Peter. I see your, your failure. I see your shame, and I actually want to heal that. And he, Jesus knows that the way to heal that might actually involve some pain and some difficulty, but it's to bring that shame out so that Peter can't hide, he can't run, he can't isolate, and he draws that out, and he says, I'm still calling you to ministry. In fact, I'm calling you back to ministry. Because what Peter had done, I think the fact that he goes back to his old life of fishing is a little bit symbolic, because we know that these were fishermen, and yet when Jesus calls them, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. No longer fishermen, but fishers of men. And Jesus had, uh, excuse me, Peter had kind of gone back to his old ways of being a fisherman. And Jesus comes to him and he's like, no, you are still a fisher of men. Even in your shame, even in your failure, even in your pain and your difficulty, you follow me. And I'm not through with you yet, Peter. I know you failed me, but I'm not through with you. And so it's through these three moments of recreation that Jesus is recreating Peter himself and saying, once again, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And so I think this has profound implications for us. Again, because I think all of us deal with feelings of shame, with the fact that we've failed in life, and whether it's shame because of what we've done or whether it's maybe misplaced shame because of the circumstance we find ourselves in or what others have done to us. Regardless, Jesus came not just to pay for that, not just to redeem that, but he actually came to free us from that, to free us from this shame so that we can be in right relationship with him, in right relationship with others. And so the takeaway is, is maybe just thinking through what 
might Jesus be doing in your life? What might he be doing in my life? What shame is there that makes me want to hide or run? And when I come across failure, when I come across a moment where I have shame or feel shame, maybe Jesus actually wants to draw that out. Not because he wants to hurt me, not because he wants to shame me more, but actually because he wants to free me and to heal me. And this is applicable not just with our shame before God, but I think this is applicable with other people too. Sometimes our shame has to be brought out and laid before others, whether it's a spouse or a significant other, a parent, a child, a friend, a sibling. It could be a coworker, a boss, maybe a pastor, Whatever the case, and certainly God himself, sometimes our shame is being brought out so that we can actually heal from it and be freed from it to go forward in ministry once again because God is not through with us yet. If we're still here, he still has a purpose with us and for us. And so let's embrace that. As, as difficult as it is, as much as it hurts, and we know it hurts, we're told that Peter was hurt when he had to face it and deal with it. Let's be willing to press into that and allow Jesus to free us and heal us. So this brings us to the Lord's table now. We're going to go to the Lord's table in a time of communion. And this is an opportunity uh, for us, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who understand um, our shame and who understand that Jesus has taken that and freed us from that. This is a time for us to go to the table and remember this as a family. This is a time where we come and we welcome Jesus. We invite him. Maybe we reflect right now and see uh, and, and think about our own shame that we have or that we have had in our lives and allow it to be brought out so that Jesus can free us and heal us. And so for those of us who do understand this, who are in Christ, who are a part of this global church, this body, then the table is for us. And if that's not you right now, that's okay. I would ask that you don't come to this table at this moment, but that's okay. You're more than welcome. Please sit and reflect with us as those of us who are part of the church go to the table. Feel free to sit and reflect alongside us and think about your own shame and think about how Jesus heals and frees and reflect on maybe that's something that God is calling me to is to actually be healed and freed from this shame. Let's go to the table.